Good morning, everybody. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I thought David Wagner was here this Sunday, and uh, I wish he was too. Poor David called me on, on Friday, uh, texted me rather, he texted me, he said, I've just flown back from Holland, and I'm in agony. I have two abscessed teeth on my, my, my lower jaw. He said, I'm in agony. My dentist has given me antibiotics. It's doing nothing. And he said, I, I can't open my mouth to talk or to eat. And I'm, I think, eight or 10 hours away from uh, Nashville. Could you please pray? So we were like, yes. And I was like, hey, uh, you know that there's people who could speak for you on Sunday. You don't, you don't have to endure this. So he said, let me know how I'm doing in the morning. And so Saturday morning, he texted and just said, I'm in agony. I had to go to urgent care. I'm on all these painkillers. I'm on a second antibiotic, still not shifting. I'd love to take you up on an offer. And I was like, no, 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 that was a test of your faith. And so now we're concerned about you. Uh, I said, absolutely. I was scheduled to speak next Sunday, July 7th. So I said, David, why don't we just swap? So David will be here next Sunday. Uh, but I thought it would be good for us to pray for David this morning. Uh, and pray for you for your disappointment. And, uh, and then, I'll, then I'll share a word with you. All right, so let's pray for David. Father, we thank you for David. We just love the Wagner family, Lord. We still love that they're part of our church. And as David is in, in agony, Lord, we ask that you just extend mercy, that we just command that pain and that infection to go. And for your love and your goodness and your power to come in, even as the family drives back today, Lord, we just bless this week, may be completely healed. Um, and Lord, I thank you. Lord, we, we just love uh, uh, hunger for your word, Lord. I thank you that we came here today wanting a word and we, we love the gift of prophets in our midst, Lord. And I ask that you would honor that same hunger and that you would teach us from your word this morning and that we'd go away full and come back for even more next week. In Jesus' name, amen. I forgot to mention that David did send his love. I said, hey, are you okay if I tell the church what's happened? He said, absolutely. He said, please tell them I love them. I'm sad to not be with them and that I have a word for the church that I'm gonna share with them next week. So come back next week. Thank you that you're here. Um, I've been talking the last couple of weeks uh, that I've been ministering all about this topic about the church. And uh, I, you know, I've been praying, I think I'd mentioned last Last time I spoke that, you know, as a teacher, I always want to be able to speak on uh, more than I have time for. So I'm kind of thanking God that I got uh, an opportunity this week to just wrap a little bow around some of the stuff that I was talking about. In the very first week that we looked at this, we talked about how the church is built by Jesus, was paid for by his blood, is added to by the Lord, is referred to as the household of God. Uh, or the pillar and foundation of truth, continues to be cared for and fed by Jesus and is used by God to display his wisdom to the unseen rulers and the church was always part of God's eternal plan. In the very first week that we talked about this, we talked about uh, instructions for us to not leave church and we looked at some of the... the uh, uh, how would you put it, the downsides of disobeying Scripture, of the fruit that, that gets produced and the encouragements for us to stay uh, in church. And then last time I spoke, uh, not last week, but the week before, we were talking about our own personal history as a church, our reluctance in some areas to embrace our identity in being a church. And we talked about the antidote to that, which is not to leave the church, but to build a better church. And I left you with two challenges, two encouragements. If you haven't done a new members class, or if you have and it's been a while, do a new members class. It starts next Sunday. It's just three Sundays uh, in a row. I'd encourage you to do that. And if you have done a new members class, to sign up and to serve. Thank you for those of you who've done that. 
You also saw the video, An Encounter Weekend. I'd really, really encourage you to do An Encounter Weekend as well. So that brings us up to speed on where we've been for the last two Sundays. And the last time I spoke, I said, this is my dilemma as a teacher, that whenever I teach, especially when teaching on a topic that's large like that one, is you always end up with this dynamic where your teaching merely scratches the surface and it produces a need for for better answers. It produces questions. And I I kind of love that because it's job security for a teacher. As long as you have questions, I've got homework to do, which is just great. And what I want to do today is I want to answer two of the most common questions I get asked when teaching on the church. Before I do that, I'm going to hydrate because that's important. AJ and I just got back uh, yesterday. Actually, we got back at 3 a.m. on on Saturday. Uh, We were in Northern California. I'm so sorry, but this is a gorgeous part of the world. I have never been there. Just absolutely astonishing. We, AJ and I went for a marriage retreat. Uh, we weren't leading the retreat. We just went to receive and just pour into our marriage. And so we went and we were just surrounded by beauty. I was just, we'd wake up and right outside our door is these rapids. I went whitewater rafting people. <laughs> Started with camping, now whitewater rafting. I have no idea what's happening. But right across from us was, all I could describe is a wall of trees. I had my drone with me. I couldn't fly my drone high enough to film the top of the tree. Just absolutely gorgeous and absolutely beautiful. And uh, just wanted to provoke jealousy in you this morning. All right, <laughs> back to the two biggest questions I get, I get asked. The very first question I'm always asked when I teach on this is, Ellen, I heard you're teaching, but is there a difference between the church and the church? I hear all your stuff about we've got to stay in church, but is there a difference between the church and the church? And you might be thinking, what are you talking about? And by that, (coughs) the question really is they're talking about, is there a difference between the church with a capital C and the church with a lowercase c? Because we're hearing all this stuff about, hey, don't leave the church, but I'm part of the church, so I can't leave the church, so none of your teaching applies to me. Do you hear the thinking? And so basically... What they're referring to is when we talk about church with a capital C, we're talking about the larger body of Christ or Christians everywhere or church as a concept. We talk about like church in the West versus, you know, church in China. We're talking about like a large expression really of a gathering of uh, multiple churches. When we talk about church with a lowercase c, We're meaning like a local church, something you could look up on Google Maps, like Gray Center or The Belonging or First Baptist of Nashville. Because the thinking goes, well, I don't have to go to church to be part of the church. You with me? Anybody ever had that thought? Yeah. So, you know, we're part of the church. Church isn't something you do. Church is something we are. And you can see why this gets confusing because we're using the same words perhaps, perhaps with different meanings. And this morning, in order to answer that question and to try and help us all get on the same page, I'm going to differentiate the same word by using capital letters to refer to big C church, when we're talking about the global church, and a little C church when we're talking about like a church that you can actually go to. In the Greek, which is what most of your New Testaments are translated from, The word church didn't exist. And so the word that is translated into both big church and little church 
is the word ecclesia. And so because I love you, I went and looked up all the ecclesias uh, in the New Testament, referred to the church. There's 106 of them. And this is what I found. I found that only 17% of the time, 18 times out of all of them, is the word ecclesia referring to church as a concept. The other 88 times it's used to refer to church as a local gathering of Christians in a church, much like we are talking about. So for example, look at this. It says, this is Jesus speaking. I tell, you that, I, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, when Jesus is talking about that, he's not talking about Grace Center, right? He's not talking about our church. He's talking about big church, the church at large. I will build the church. It's part of my eternal purpose. Or how about this in Acts chapter 9, verse 31? It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Again, the writer here is talking about church, the concept made up of churches, the items. See how it gets a little bit confusing? You all good though? This side's good. The rest of you are like, where's David Wagner? I know I miss him too. (laughs) The beard, the wisdom, the jokes, the prophetic revelation. I'm as understudy today and I'm as disappointed as you are, but we'll get through it together. Come on. Soon and very soon we'll all be eating tacos and our pain will be be vanquished. It'll be wonderful. (laughs) Ephesians 5 verse 29 says this, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. Again, Christ doesn't just feed and care for one church. He cares for all the churches. Reference here is church with a capital C. And so I think church with a small c is just an expression or a physical manifestation of church, the big C. With me? That help. Some of you are like, I don't care. The longer I ask you questions, the longer you speak. So I'm going to be quiet and hopefully we'll get through this faster. The point I want to make though, hey, I'm okay. I have like cheerleaders in my head going, you're great and you're smart and you're kind and you're so handsome. Your hair looks like a silver fox. You're awesome. So don't feel any pity for me. Are you kidding me? You should see what it's like in here. It's a carnival of awesomeness. Good job, Alan. That was funny. That was great. The point I'm trying to make, though, is that over 80% of the references to church in the New Testament are referring to church the thing, not church the concept. Okay. The second question I get asked then, usually when people hear the answer to that one is, well, what makes a church a church? It's a great question. And the trouble is the definition of the word ecclesia doesn't actually help us because it's a word that can be used in a bunch of different contexts, but it literally means a group of people gathered together or a group of people who are called out. So you go to a football game, that's an ecclesia. You have a 4th of July party, that's an ecclesia. It's a group of people together. So let's go back to the beginning and see if we can find some ingredients that make up a biblical church. If you're excited, say, I'm excited. If you're not, say, I'm in denial. All right. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 41. It says, Those who believed 
What Peter said, we're baptized. This is back to the very first uh, church gathering. Okay, you've had the day of Pentecost, a couple of people just praying together. Holy Spirit falls. Peter preaches his first sermon. And then it says this, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. That's some church growth going on right there. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Continues in verse 46, they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So literally you see right at the start, the genesis of the church, it's a home group, arguably the best home group ever. All right. But it's a home group. And so you can see some elements already beginning uh, to gather in what their church looked like. Now, it's important to ask, especially when reading the book of Acts, is is the writer of Acts being descriptive or prescriptive? So is he just describing what the church was like or is he prescribing what the church should be like? And that's your homework for lunch. You get to talk about that together. I want to keep on reading because what we're reading here is just the birth of the church. And it doesn't stay like this for very long. If you get to Acts chapter 4, just a couple of chapters later, it says this. We'll read about two of the church leaders, Peter and John. They're preaching to a crowd of people and they get arrested. And it says this, but many of the people who heard their messages believed it. And so the number of men who believed now totaled 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So you've got two church leaders in prison. That seems to be a key for church growth. So I'm gonna need some volunteers from our staff this week. Take one for the team, Christine. Perfect, okay. They're in prison. There's 3,000 people already in the church. Now another 2,000 have just been added. So you've got a church of about 5,000. It just says 2,000 men were added there, or was it 3,000? Many of the people. You've now got 5,000 men in the church, plus women, plus children. So the question is, what makes a church a church? I think if you look at the passages that I've just read to you this morning, And if you look through the New Testament, you can come up with a fairly good list of things, some ingredients that make a church a church. For example, it contains believers. Well, that's obvious. But it also contains those who are being saved. People hold to baptism. Uh, They're devoted to biblical teaching. As you read through, you you read a real sense of fellowship and of community. Prayer is evident, as is worship. Then there's the practice of the Lord's Supper and generosity. Interestingly, the place or the building or the time of day isn't important. Okay, they were meeting in the temple, but they're also meeting in each other's homes. And you know, I remember talking to Don Finto about this, and he said, oh, you know, I've, I know of a church that meets on Thursdays. I was like, why do they meet on Thursdays? He said, it's the only day they get to borrow a Bible. In a foreign country where Bibles are illegal, and, and that's, you know, they pass it around. There's churches that have church on every night of the week whenever they can get a Bible. 
AJ and I recorded a podcast uh, a number of years ago on this very topic. We're talking about church, what makes up a church, what's the difference between a church and this and that and the next. And we're talking all about it. And that week I got a text message from a friend. She'd listened to the episode and she was on her own journey walking away from church. And this is what she texted. She asked this question. She said, could this be done without being part of a local church and simply meeting together intentionally? That was a really interesting question. My friend was asking, when is a group of people meeting together intentionally about Jesus, not a church? And when is a group of people meeting together intentionally about Jesus, a church? I was really interested in the question behind the question. Like, why do you need to know? It looks like, just again from your story, that you want the things without having to do the things. Like I want the benefits of being in a church, but I don't want to be a church. Church feels so restrictive. So couldn't I just do this and not be in a church? She's asking, when does the line get crossed and getting together intentionally accidentally becomes a church? Well, it's a good question and it deserves a good answer. And I think the answer is found in Scripture. If you keep reading the book of Acts, again, amazing book. If you haven't read Acts in a, in a while, I'd encourage you to just dig it out. Super encouraging. It says this. As the believers rapidly multiplied, there was rumblings of discontent. Where two or three are gathered, there are rumblings of discontent. <laughs> The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom and we will give them this responsibility." Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. So what you see is, as the church begins to grow organically, the first thing it needed was some structure. Even though it was organic in nature, it's still obvious from reading that the apostles are recognized as the leaders of this rapidly growing gathering of people. Do you see that? It's 5,000 people, but they all knew who were the people to go speak to? They recognized the authority and so they go and say, hey, this is this problem. And their solution was to give responsibility to other people. Now here's what you need to know. Responsibility always precedes healthy authority. So they were recognizing, oh, there is a need. So the first thing they did was they raised up leaders. Leaders are there to serve other people not lord over other people. We'll come back to that in a second. I love when I start talking about leaders and authority. All the oxygen leaves the room. <laughs> and everybody sits up taller. You can read later on in Acts when Saul, before he became Paul, went around trying to destroy the church. Acts 8, for example, it says, Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. 
Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who'd been paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was great joy in that city. As, a, as opposition happened to the church, the church began to grow just as Jesus had prophesied. And by the time we get to the end of the same book we're starting with, you see that Saul, far from tearing down the church, is now Paul and he's raising up the church and he's doing that by raising up leaders. If we jump over to Acts 20, he's speaking to leaders that he's helped raise and he's charging them with overseeing their local church as well. He says this, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I was reading this and I thought it was fascinating because Paul realizes that him raising up leaders is not just his great idea, but it's a work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit made them overseers, but it was Paul who raised them. The Holy Spirit had a hand in making these people pastors and leaders. Elsewhere, as you read through the New Testament, you see Paul who takes his role as a leader, as an apostle in this newly emerging church by placing other leaders in other churches. Look at this, he writes to Titus, he says this, I'm writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. And then he goes on and gives some of the hallmarks for what a church elder must have in their, in their life. Again, according to Paul, the job of the leader that he appointed, Titus, was to himself raise up other leaders. And so as you, as you read through Scripture, you see that the Holy Spirit appoints leaders via leaders. In Peter's first letter, you see him writing to scattered Christians, and he's writing to encourage them. And in chapter 5, he says this, and now a word to you who are elders in the churches. I too am an elder and a witness to the suffering of Christ and I too will share in his glory when he's revealed to the whole world. As a fellow elder, I appeal to you, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you'll get out of it, but because you are eager to serve God. Don't lord it over the people assigned to your care, but lead them by your own good example. And when the great shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of never-ending glory and honor. In the same way, you younger men must accept the authority to the elders. And all of you serve each other in humility, for God opposes the proud but favors the humble. My point is this. In this organic church, this radical church growth movement, God puts in place leaders. And those leaders then put in place leaders and so on and so forth. You find that there is a, a need not only for healthy leaders, but a healthy approach to healthy leaders. And so my answer to the question is, you know, actually what makes a church a church and what differentiates a group of people who are just meeting together is this. I think what differentiates a church from a group of people just meeting together is godly authority. The apostles didn't put structure in place for structure's sake. 
They delegated leadership to care for the people as modeled and directed by Jesus. The end of Matthew 28, Jesus says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because I have authority, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. That's how Matthew ends. Look at how Acts starts. They gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Jesus was saying, I have all authority on earth and it's been given to me. And that authority I'm going to impart to you so that you can disciple, so you can lead effectively. Teach them everything I've taught you. And then in Acts, he reminds them again, hey, in order for you to do what you need to do, power is needed. Power, the same way I have authority, you're going to need power and authority and that's going to come from the Holy Spirit and then they're taken from them. Now, Paul wasn't among those 12 people. But if anything is clear, it's Paul understands who he is in Christ as a leader. That much is obvious from reading his writing. So look at this. I'll give you a couple of passages. 2 Corinthians 10, he writes this. Paul, even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. This is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. He's like, I understand I'm an apostle. I, I don't want to boast about it, but at the same time, I don't want to be ashamed of it. It's just who I am and what I do. And actually the purpose of my authority is to build you up, not tear you down. Now, why do you think he's going to have to give that contrast? Because for the large part, the only version of authority that the people in his community have seen is ungodly authority exercised by the Romans. And they were not nice leaders. All right, so they're oppressing by force. And he's like, no, 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 no. You've seen that kind of authority. I'm talking about authority that God's given to help build you up, you as the church. First Thessalonians, he says this, we were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles, we could have asserted our authority for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Again, his use of authority is just to further the instructions that Jesus gave him. Paul also gave his authority to his leaders to be used in the same way. He writes to Titus in Titus chapter 2. These then are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. And don't let anyone despise you. He's saying, hey, your authority is for the good of the people. It's to encourage those that need it and rebuke those that need it too. The last three weeks I've spoken, I've been doing both. I've been encouraging you with the authority that God's given me as a teacher in this house. And I've been rebuking wrong teaching publicly so that you're not led astray. Now, it wasn't all bad, right? We read like, oh my gosh, your use of authorities for encouraging and rebuking. I like the first part, I'm not so sure I like the second. Hey, a rebuke done well 
He's as gracious and as kind to our body as an encouragement. If all you ever get from your leaders is encouragement, they're not leaders and that's not encouragement, they're flatterers and that's flattery. You need both in a culture of honor. You need a healthy uh, culture of correction too. You with me? You all good? Feeling before where I go next? I'm not saying this is the exclusive reason, but it's certainly a feature that keeps popping its head up in the lives of the people that I know personally who don't want to be in church. And what is usually at the root, or at least present, is a reluctance to have authority in their life. Right, so in the lives of the people that I know personally, that I have pastored through, they don't want to be in church, they're just like, ah, get away from me, is they love the Lord, but somewhere in their past, they've been abused by leaders. I tell all my leaders when, when we train leaders on our very first day, this is a true story, you can ask anybody I've, I've raised up into leadership. On the very first day, I say, hey, congratulations, now that you're a leader... You are now a walking representative of hurt to everyone who's been abused by leadership. Right? It's not a pity party. It's not so that they can expect to be abused. It's a reality. You know? So I remember, I remember you know, uh, whenever I meet new people, you know, they're like, hey, what do you do for a living? I was like, ah, let's wait for a couple of connections before I tell you. <laughs> Why? Because all of us in life have had negative experiences with authority. I'm not talking just about church leaders, though I'm certainly including that. Because in the same way that, you know, Paul was aware of his authority and, 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 and taught people how to use his authority, he also taught people how to work with authority. One of the things we're very, very careful about at Grace Center is, is raising leaders because there's something called the ring of power. I mean, you're like, this person is lovely, and you know, they're humble, and they're teachable, and I think we should give them, you know, a measure of authority. And so we give them a measure of authority, and we're like, good Lord, they're Hitler in disguise. <laughs> like, what happens? They get a taste for power, and if there's unhealed issues in there, poof, out it comes. And in the same way that all of us have been hurt by leaders, leaders have been hurt by leaders. So there's a really interesting dynamic that, yes, the ring of power, that kind of influence begins to do stuff to the unhealed issues of the heart, but so too are our own leadership woundings. What do you mean, Alan? Well, let me tell you. Let's just say that you've been wounded by a leader and now you become a leader. If you haven't dealt with all your issues of the leaders that have hurt you, you've judged them. And Scripture says that whatever you judge, you become. So now you become the very thing you hated and you perpetuate your own wounding into the lives of other people. Yay! So it's tricky. And it makes sense why people be wounded and try and find everything they need without having to be around big, bad, scary, wounding leaders. But you never get what your heart needs by ignoring scriptural principles. It might feel like you do short term, but you don't long term. I remember, you know, talking to some people who had, had actually left Grace Center and uh, 
They were like, oh yeah, no, it's great. You know, like now we meet together. It's not a church, but we just meet together. I was like, oh, what do you do? They're like, oh, we sing songs and, you know, uh, you know, and then we prophesy over each other and then we minister to one another and maybe somebody shares something from the word. I'm like, it sounds an awful lot like a church to me. And they're like, no, 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 there's, you know, uh, and I was like, oh, who's in it? And they began to just list off the people who's in it. And I was like, okay, I know these people. And the defining characteristics of these people, from my perception, is that they've worked really, really hard to ensure that they're not under any authority at any time. You know, one of the most defining characteristics of what all the people did in the, in the, in the group that wasn't a church that behaved really like a church? Let me say it and then let me apologize, right? <laughs> they were all entrepreneurs. Now, let me apologize. I have nothing against entrepreneurs. I love entrepreneurs. I think they're amazing. They're backbone in this country. I applaud entrepreneurial spirit. Hear that. But what was interesting about that is when you're an entrepreneur, what do you not have to deal with on a day-by-day basis? A boss. I'm like, my God, you've managed to live your life removed from any authority. And you're attracted to another group of people who don't want authority either. Now, (laughs) are you still with me? Here's the thing I noticed. Now, again, please understand, these are people I know and have not just lived with, but walked with and pastored. So I'm not standing here making a critical observation and a judgment. These are people I know who have been intertwined in their lives with. And here's what I've noticed is that they will historically tend to back away. The podium there represents the seat of authority. They will just back away and they'll talk the talk and walk the walk and say, this is what I want and this is great and this is amazing. But sooner or later in life, what I notice is they get backed into a corner. And once they're backed into the corner, do you know the, one of the very first things they do is they reach out for authority. It's remarkable. I'm not saying everybody who's done that hits calamity, but I am saying everybody in my life, in the last 10 years that I've been here, everybody who has hit major calamity, I don't mean like minor calamity, which is, I don't know, your marriage might be in trouble or you lost your job or, or, or some sort of you know, financial difficulty. I call that like you know, minor calamity. I'm talking major life-stopping, show-stopping calamity. Everybody in the last 10 years that I've dealt with with that level of calamity, all of the things that they have in common is all the people I've dealt with stop going to church. Now, please don't hear me say that if you stop going to church, calamity is your destiny. But I am saying everybody who I've dealt with in major calamity had stopped going to church. And what happens is once they back themselves into the corner, I get phone calls from people I haven't heard for six, seven years. And they're like, hey, is this Alan? Yeah, it's like, hey, it's so-and-so. Hey, great to hear from you. Like, what's going on? I need your help. The question I want to ask, and please understand, it's not from a facetious part of my heart at all. It's from wanting to understand, like anthropologically, why are you calling me? Like, not me. You know, I'll give the shirt off my back to anybody I can help. But like, why are you calling me? Why aren't you asking your small group leader for, oh, you don't have a small group leader. You have a collection of people who meet together on autonomous terms, but there's no one ruler because we don't want authority. Ah. And what is it that you need to propel you to, oh, you need authority. That makes sense. See, we all love authority. We don't know we do. Let me give you an example. Let's just go horrible for a second. 
You were in a horrific car accident and have sustained brain trauma. And your options are have brain surgery done by a board certified surgeon or some guy that's his like hobby you found him on Craigslist. And he's like, yeah, I would have got board certified, but I don't like authority, you know, just like, you know, people telling you what to do and how much training you have to have. And they're all about like, you must sterilize your equipment. And I'm all like, just go for it, you know, just a little bit of, no, you're gonna love authority. Your house is broken into and you're terrified. Do you dial 911? Or do you're like, eh, I don't know. There's this guy on YouTube, he teaches about home defense. See if I'll give him a call. See, when we hit crisis, authority is what we want because there's leverage to get us where we need to go. But there's a problem. And the problem is spelled T-R-U-S-T. It's, you know, it's hard to trust for a variety of reasons. The healthiest churches I know, I remember John Arnott saying to me, he said, the greatest gift a church can have is healed up leaders. And he said, that's why, you know, all of our leaders we send them through RTF, all of our leaders. We, that's why AJ and I went away for a marriage retreat. Not because we're having marriage crisis, but because we don't want to be so ignorant that we think, nah, we got this. As soon as you think we've got this, you're in for a surprise. <laughs> a, crash course, a crash course advanced learning course in how much you don't have it <laughs> is awaiting you. So John would say, hey, the greatest gift a church can have is healed up leaders. And I would say, yes, and in my observation, the healthiest churches I know not only have healthy leaders, but people who have worked through their leadership issues so that the two can go hand in hand. You know, I put up something like this. And when I talk about a New Testament model for a church or things like that, you're like, oh, who wouldn't want to go to a church like that? Even people who've left the church would be like, man, well, if I could find a church like that, then I'd go to it. But here's the thing, the type of church you go to is not often the issue. The real issue at work is a coin. And on one side, it's a heart that does not want to be under authority. But equally as painful on the other side of the coin is there's a lot of broken leaders out there who are not healed enough to lead with the authority that God's given them. And so on both sides of the coin, we want to ignore our pain and abstract the issue away to a Facebook post that we can get lots of likes on to convince us that we're right. In our hearts, we often think, man, if I could find a church leader I'd want to submit to, I'd be happy to do so. Here's the trick to walking well with leaders. Find good ones. Right? The word submit in Greek is patho, which means allow yourself to be persuaded by. My job is not to convince the people that follow me that I am right. My job is to say, hey, here's something. I would love it if you would allow yourself to be persuaded by it. But if you can't, it's not my job to convince you that you do. Right, because then I've just stepped into your hula and like, hey, you know what the, the thing is? You don't know how to do your life, so let me manage it for you. That's control, it's nauseating, it's disgusting, and doesn't produce long-term health. 
You all good? Yes. <laughs> uh, you've heard it, you said a million times, you know, if you find a perfect church, don't join it, you'll spoil it. But even the most amazing churches are riddled with big problems. Why? Because they're made up of broken people on the path to healing. Read Paul's letters to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, right? The church in Corinth, by all accounts, was just like a powerhouse. Just incredible. And Corinth itself, just this amazing city filled with like the who's who of the, you know, the zoo. And there's power and there's tongues and there's prophecies and there's all this crazy stuff. But there's also depravity like you can't imagine and dysfunction. And, you know, Paul, both letters are Paul writing to the leaders about the questions they're asking him. And he's like, hey, well, about this matter that you brought up. And he's just trying to bring some clarity to it. Read the letters that Jesus writes to the seven churches in Revelation. Some of them are so messed up. Jesus is telling me you're on your final warning or I'm going to put you out of business. The solution isn't to leave the church appalled at the mess that it's at. The solution is to build a better church. A friend of mine who I deeply love, a number of years ago, asked me a question I was not prepared for. I didn't see it coming. I was shocked he even asked it. But for some context, this is a friend who at one point was a church planter. At one point, planted churches. He's a Christian but he has spent the last five years uh, not being in church. It's like, I don't want to be in church. You know, church is just like, ah, oh, it's an old wineskin. And I'm like, no, it's the only wineskin that the Lord has and it's part of his eternal plan, but go on. And you know, the, you know, I just don't want to be in church and church is blah, 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 blah. And so AJ and I are having dinner with him and his wife and he turns to me and he says, Alan, when are you going to leave the church? Like, it's an inevitable thing. Like, I'll come to my senses and I will leave the church. You know, he's very kind and he's very flattering. He's just like, ah, you know, you know your gifts are wasted in the church. We need to do this and that and the next thing. And I'm thinking, when am I going to leave the church? And so I took a deep breath and I said, I'm just getting started. Like, the church for me is ripe for godly transformation. I'm excited about what God will do and what happens when he shows up and wants to bring sweeping change. I've spent my life to get here to the ground floor of what I think God is doing in this season. And I want to be part of the transformation that God brings to the church and so to culture. So I'm not leaving church. Paul writes this in Ephesians 5. Jesus gave up his life for the church to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. That's why biblical preaching is so important, by the way. That's where we as the church get our stinking thinking cleaned up. Because have you noticed that when you return to truth, you have clarity, but when you wander away from it, you don't realize you're diluted? Have you ever, you know, like there's a couple of people I follow on Twitter or, you know, and I begin, oh, they make a great point, they make a great point. Yeah, they make a great point compared to nothing. <laughs> right, but Proverbs itself says, one's man way seems right till another presents his case. If you're not constantly having God's case presented, other people can seem right. That's why we get washed in the word on a weekly basis. He did this to present her 
to himself as a glorious church. Guys, that's the look we're going for. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or without any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. The reason we need Jesus to make us holy and clean is because we're a mess. I say that with all honor and all kindness. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are a mess in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Listen. And now I've lost you. Like, how dare you? Some of you are like, I've been waiting years to tell that to my neighbor. (laughs) Come out, you critical spirit. Out! In the name of Jesus. Here's the thing. Some of the criticisms that are being leveled at the church are entirely accurate. But it's not a reason to jump ship. It's a reason to take the Word of God more seriously. It would be like me complaining about my family's such a mess. You're like, you're one of the leaders of your family. Why don't you clean up? Okay, my car, this car is filthy. Uh huh, who drives it? Well, me, but that's not the point. <laughs> Again, the reason we need Jesus to make us holy and clean is because we're a mess. He's in the process of making us a glorious church without spot, without wrinkle. And I want to be part of the process to be part of the outcome. Amen? Let us stand. I'll pray for us and then we'll we'll go discuss theology at lunch. Lord Jesus, we're standing because we're in church today, hearing a word about church, and we realize, oh, you're talking about us. Lord, the problems with the church are not outside. They're within these four walls, Lord. This is the only church we can do anything about. And we're signing up for the process of being made holy and without fault. Lord, we, we repent to you, Lord, for our own wounding, Lord. The wounding that we've caused and the wounding that we've received. And Lord, the most common response to sin is to sin against those who've sinned against us. And so, Lord, we realize we've made judgments against leaders, parents, authority figures, the police, government, All of those judgments, Lord, will boomerang back on us. They will defile us, they'll defile others. And so we repent of that, Lord. And so, Lord, would you, you know, you're so good, Lord, at bringing cleansing where we need it. And so, Lord, would you cleanse us, Lord. And as we think about us as a church, Lord, we we sign up. We're like, yes, Lord, we want to build a better church. We, We love that you're the head of our church, Lord Jesus. And we're following you as best we can. We're not perfect, but we are hungry. And we're eager, Lord, and we're willing to try and try again. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, into our lives, into the areas that we get to lead, our families, our businesses, our communities, our workplaces. Lord, would you anoint us? Would you, Lord, even this week, your word says, may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. And so, Lord, if, if there's grumbling in our hearts about the leaders in our lives, would you Put a capstone over our mouths, Lord, so that we don't dishonor our leaders. And Lord, would you help us as we build a better church following you and your word. And so we bless our lives. We bless our nation, Lord, as we head into our 4th of July. Now would be a good time to just forgive our judgments against Britain. I'm just saying that. Uh, But Lord, would you give us a great holiday week? Would you bless our president? Would you bless our nation? And would you bless one another today in Jesus' name, amen.